guys, welcome back to the Live Loud Life Podcast. My name is Dr. Antonio, your host of the Live Loud Life Podcast. Uh, this show is brought to you by Live Loud Chiropractic and Coaching. That is um, uh, our practice in Lafayette, Colorado. My wife and I, we own Live Loud Chiropractic and Coaching. Uh, we help families through a, a variety and wide range of issues, really starting though with prenatal, postnatal, and pediatric care, uh, while also then supporting the rest of the family from birth up into grandparents, older age, whatever that is. And our big focus is really just helping making families stronger so that we can make our community stronger as a whole and that you can express this live this loud life that you want to be able to live and pass that on to others just by setting an example of about what health fitness um, strength whatever that is to you looks like and being that prime example I don't know if you can hear right now but in the background here we got some little baby uh, chickens and ducks uh, that are currently they are hatched uh they are currently baking under a heat lamp um as we are planning on sorry about this um as we are planning on uh, closing on a property soon, which is amazing for us and a family, and we're gonna have just a little bit of more space, and hopefully, gonna be having some chicken and some duck eggs. So that is what you may or may not hear in the background. Not sure if you can hear that in the post edit. Um, with that, couple couple things we have coming down the pipeline. Um, Nichelle is working with one of her good friends on a postnatal course. And what this postnatal course is essentially, here's all the things that we wish we knew after we had babies, we being Michelle and uh, her uh, her friend who are, who are doing this project again, not me. Uh, but there is application obviously to uh, partners and husbands within that as well. Um, from, from nutrition, from postpartum rehab to postpartum mental health, you know, whatever that is, that's going to be such an amazing course. And the reason why when you're pregnant, when your family's pregnant, all of the time, energy and focus is on you up until birth. And then baby comes along. Obviously, we want to make sure mom and baby are healthy and doing well. But then the focus starts transitioning on to baby, making sure that they're gaining weight, making sure that they have everything they need. And oftentimes, outside of the six-week checkup that moms get, there's not a lot of love given to the postpartum mama. And so they want to be able to fix that. So um, if that's you, if that's a friend you know, uh, if that's you coming up in the future, uh, be sure to look out for that. We'll be posting that on our Live Loud page, on our Instagram accounts, Michelle's um, uh, personal Instagram uh, as well. And, and and we don't want to share too much about it because it's still kind of in the developmental stages, but that will be coming down the pipeline this year. Aside from that, speaking of pregnancy and postpartum, I generated, created, generated, whatever you want to call it, a course that's how to not how to not suck at giving your pregnant partner a massage. Obviously, us being body workers, that's something that we're doing on the daily basis, helping our helping our prenatal mamas. But it's something that we advocate for at home because there's a ton of benefit for for reducing aches and pains for your pregnant partner, uh, for the birth and labor preparation process of reducing restrictions within the abdominal wall and the pelvis, so on and so forth to help with baby positioning and labor. But also from a connection standpoint, um, there's, there's a lot of changes going on in pregnancy. Again, I don't know what those are because I haven't lived it, but I know and I've seen it happen through for, 
through and with my wife for three for all three of our kiddos. And it's a very challenging time when especially when it comes to touch and intimacy and different things like that. And not that this is an intimacy course, but the whole touch aspect is it, you're, as your body's changing, it just, it just feels different for not only you, but also the partner. And so we wanted to help provide you a little bit of guidance on how you can give your pregnant partner some basic massages from hands, which helps with carpal tunnel symptoms, from rubbing feet, which helps with swelling, from working on the hips or the lower back, which is one of the main achy points or pain points when being pregnant. Um, so if you're interested, if, if you are a partner listening to this and you're interested in being able to provide your pregnant partner a better massage experience or have that touch and connection point with you, I think, I think you'd find that very handy and helpful. Um, we'll link that in the show notes. And, uh, we also have that listed within our, uh, link tree in our Instagram account. And if you're, pregnant or you're about to be pregnant or you know someone who's pregnant and you think that they might benefit from that, uh, that's a great, um, not passive aggressive, but insinuating gift to give to someone who's like, Hey, would you watch this so that you feel more comfortable about giving me a massage talking from the pregnant mama's perspective? Um, so it's, it's, it's very, it's very easy. We give some anatomical landmarks. It's not clinical by any means. We help, uh, describe what parts of uh, hands can be used to make it more comfortable. Um, it's a short, it's a very, very short, like four hour course. And, but it's, but it's extremely, it's extremely, extremely um, handy and beneficial to build upon that. Now, enough with the introductions. What, what, what I wanted to talk about today was um, arthritis and tendonitis. Um, itis being the key and some different ways that I want you to, to look at arthritis and tendonitis, um, as it pertains to what's actually going on now to better describe itis simply means inflammation and usually associated with pain, right? Inflammation usually associated with pain. It's not always the case, but usually associated with pain. So example, we'll just use a bicep tendonitis. Bicep tendonitis, there could be multiple reasons as to why the bicep tendonitis is in there. And that's first and foremost, what we're trying, not maybe first and foremost, but within the process of diagnosing and treating injuries, understanding the potential why is something happened, is a critical component. And this, this is slightly foreshadowing for our conversation here. Uh, but also just knowing which tendon is irritated or inflamed is highly important too for knowing how to load properly, so on and so forth. But it essentially means the tendon is inflamed and irritated, could be micro damaged, could be more damaged, but the bicep tendonitis, tendon pain irritated, okay? And usually that's due to what, as if you were to type this in, overuse injuries um, or or too much loading or something like that, right? Does that make sense? Like usually it's, it's described as wear and tear or overuse, so on and so forth. Um, and, and I'm going to dive a little bit more into that to hopefully help describe what that means. <clears throat> Now, we also can look at arthritis, arthro meaning joint. We can have inflammation of the joint, 
And most people associate this with knees, hips, shoulders, like these big major joints. Now, again, assumed and described as an overuse type of injury. For instance, if you run too much, you're going to destroy your knees and create arthritis because of the wear and tear and impact. Now, that is not to say that load and too much load will not cause arthritis, but what we also have to uh, we also have to know, not assume, but know, is that load and force is one of the things that actually makes things stronger. Our body has this amazing ability to adapt and respond to the forces opposed upon it, pending it, it is done at a level enough to elicit adaptation and not so much that we create detrimental or possibly damaging effects. Okay, so there is this sweet spot of adaptation of loading just enough, but not too much that we create an issue. And that's really where the magic happens. Now, what is that load? Well, it's different for everyone. It's different on a number of different criterias from your experience with lifting or loading or doing anything else. Um, not only that is how long you've been doing it. So for weightlifting, they call they oftentimes call it like your weightlifting age of like how long you've been doing this because that that essentially will help someone determine how much um, how much your tendons have been under load and how much response and density they've built up over time. Um, uh, there's also a number of just metabolic factors and conditions that would more so be in response to how your body recovers. Um, so for instance, someone who might have like certain autoimmune conditions or certain conditions that just makes it harder for them to recover, that's obviously going to make it make your recovery from that adaptation uh, more challenging. So there, there, there are a number of things to consider, and we're not going to dive into all those because that's not what's most important. What's most important to understand, though, is that load is a good thing. But just like anything else, too much of a good thing could be a bad thing. But I think more times than not, we're erring too far on the conservative side, assuming that too much load will create damage and thus you will have more degeneration or more arthritis or more tendonitis, thus leading to more damage, thus leading to more pain, thus leading to further intervention down the road, i.e. steroids, injections, MRIs, possible surgery. Make sense? And the reason why we have to look at this is we, we have to have a conversation about how much you're currently doing. And then we try to meet in that zone of adaptation. So for instance, right, in the, the example of the bicep tendonitis, let's say for instance, hypothetically, that someone is working out um, doing some form of HIIT training, which usually involves a lot of upper body stuff, five to six days a week, and they've only been doing this type of training for six months, okay? Six months, relatively new. They, they, they've been lifting before, but it's been mostly kind of like your basic bodybuilding, you know, less intense, less dynamic type of movements. 
six months ago, they decided to start hit trading. They start hitting it harder. Uh, and they're doing a lot of different things at speed and, and, and in a more dynamic fashion. So we can see that there is a direct change in the amount of load in which the shoulders were being um, exposed to with possibly less recovery time and or not enough recovery time based on the new training methodology and style. So we can see a direct link and change to why a, uh, an instance of a bicep tendon might be, might be hurting. And so the question would then be, well, what's the best approach to deal with this? Now, outside of an MRI, we wouldn't necessarily know the extent of the possible damage to the tendon, but even with the MRI, you're not going to fully know that unless there's gross major damage and changes, okay, which your function and, and limitations and ability would, would most likely be down because of that. So with, you know, with this story and example, making that assumption is that it slowly and gradually kind of crept up on us over the last six months or realistically maybe over the last six, four or six or eight weeks, we can make an assumption that we are above that zone of adaptation and the load is too much. Now, that does not mean we have to cut out all load. There are other factors that would be leading into this, and part of this is the biomechanical approach of leverage. There are certain movements in which, when we're talking about upper body movements, we might be loading or leveraging the bicep tendon too much and not sharing and distributing the load across other joints such as the elbows or other muscles such as the pecs, the triceps, anterior delts, so on and so forth. Um, and they're all involved in some capacity, but we're really just looking like, do we are we, are we leveraging well enough so our, our bigger muscles, such as pecs and delts, are not taking as much load or strain as the bicep tendon might be? So that's a factor. The other factor would be recovery. The other factor, you know, recovery involves diet, sleep, so on and so forth. So we can see a clear indication representation of why the tendon irritation or tendonitis occurred, but we cannot say that it's because... Uh, or sorry, we know that it's too much. We're just just above that zone of adaptation, but we cannot just assume that like the movement is bad because it just might be too much loading or too much weight or not enough recovery. And that's part of the recovery and the rehab process is finding out what what really works, right? So I would argue that the majority of shoulder movements should and would be okay, pending we're not significantly increasing pain within the shoulder and, and, and thus in turn decreasing its function, range of motion, swelling, so on and so forth, right? So we're trying to find a middle ground of saying, hey, yeah, we would love for you to keep working out. We just need to be a little bit more careful about what those might be based on those loading principles, uh, so on and so forth. Now, what I, the reason why I wanted to share that story first was to go to the complete opposite way and talk about something as simple as um, knee arthritis, different... Again, we're under the same assumption that load is the predominant factor that's irritating that's irritating a tendon, a joint, a muscle, so on and so forth, right? And that is then in turn creating itis, inflammation, and pain. And we could say, if we wanted to keep this consistent, we could say patellar tendonitis within the knee. We're just going to say knee arthritis. Patellar, patellar tendonitis, same, same region, same, same conversation. But here, 
we're looking at an individual who's been told they have knee arthritis and they're, let's say for instance, this has been an ongoing thing for the last three or four years. And essentially the conversation is, Hey, you're doing too much on your knee. You need to, you need to cut back and reduce how much load you're putting onto your knee. Well, then the patient asks, well, what would those things be? What are your activities? Well, you know, I pretty much just walk the dog and that's about all the extent of my exercise I do. I don't do any resistance training or anything like that. Well, walking, walking must be the thing that's too much for your body. So you need to wait, let it rest, let it rest, and then you can get back to it. So we wait and we wait and we wait and sometimes weeks, months, sometimes even years later, we're still waiting for the thing to heal. Now, if you look at any, any sort of textbook, any sort of physiology textbook that talks about healing timelines, especially when you're not doing anything, 12, 6, 8, 12, maybe 16 weeks is a pretty consistent timeline for when healing should occur, right? N meaning that if you've been waiting that long, whatever has been quote unquote damaged is healed and that there shouldn't be any more pain. But this is tricky about, about this is the tricky part about pain. And we've had other episodes about pain before, but this is where you're, we're seeing, well, if load is causing arthritis, but yet this person or tendonitis, but yet this person isn't doing anything, why are they still having this knee arthritis, tendonitis diagnosis when they haven't done anything. There's no load even involved, but yet they're still getting labeled as the knee is the issue and there's some sort of damage and that damage is irreplaceable and that it cannot change. And that's what's so interesting to, to then, you know, kind of tie this all back. Remember the conversation of load elicited adaptation response of strength? If you are not loading tendons, connective tissues, muscles, and joints, they will actually, I'm going to say it, I don't want to say it, but start to degenerate and weaken if you don't use them. It is a use it or lose it principle, right? If I was to not exercise, my knees would start to degenerate faster than if I did exercise argumentatively some on the extreme case extreme 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 case of too much exercise might be leading to some more damage on certain things but you have to consider those that are doing those they're they're in tune with their programming they're in tune with their recovery they're in tune with their diet right so the 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 likelihood of more inflammation and issues arising actually reduces because in order to even do that much you have to be dialed in and outside of that usually those individuals that have tendon issues or joint issues they're more accidental just based on sheer statistics of how many repetitions one might do in the likelihood of running into an issue of a bad rep or something happening. That's the reason why, not because they're doing too much per se. And they've actually looked at this with marathon runners. Marathon runners, predominantly which are done on concrete and street running, they don't have any more knee arthritis than a sedentary population that does not exercise. And, are, and, and, and some would say, and argumentally based on the radiographs that they're looking at, that the sedentary popula population actually show more signs of degeneration than those who are running marathons and are more active. 
And they're starting to dive into this more where when we look at the joint, the joint is essentially two bones that meet each other. Okay. And then within that, we have a cartilage surface, which essentially is like a smooth surface, which allows for the two surfaces to rub together with less friction. Okay. And they're contoured based on the shape of the other one so that you have this nice sliding and free, free moving joint. Now that is controlled and, and the amount of range of motion is controlled through the muscles, but also the ligaments. And then within that, the majority of our joints are what we call a synovial joint. So there is a capsule. This is a fibrous capsule that holds synovial fluid within the joint. So if we look at, uh, I'm going to describe this and also show it, but if I have my two knuckles together as a joint, I have per se a a piece of saran wrap that attaches the two joints together. And then within that saran wrap, I have this like oil, this like lubricant and oil that helps keep the joint a little slippery and lubricated. Okay. Um, it is a fluid and that fluid has a number of different properties within it, which helps keep it healthy. But as with most fluids within our body, that fluid ebbs and flows and moves as a result of movement. So as an example, the majority of our venous return, while our heart is pumping and we have blood pressure, it's pumping through the rest of our body and that pressure helps return helps return that fluid back to the heart, the majority of that is actually pumped back through our body through movement. So our veins don't have any contractile or tensile properties like a capillary would or your arteries, right? Sorry, arteries, not capillaries per se. Uh, arteries would. And so they're basically just a hollow tube, but they have a one-way valve. So as I move my arm, my muscle actually contracts and that squeezes blood out of the system. It goes through the veins. And then that backflow valve prevents uh, prevents uh, essentially blood from backing up. Okay. So the, the joints are, are, are very similar in the fact that you need to move the joint in order to move new synovial fluid in and out. It is constantly being interchanged. Thus the recovery model that we've been talking about, right? Unlike your automobile, which does not auto generate that lubrication, you have to drain it and refill it. We're able to constantly do that on a daily basis through movement. And you need to do that because what they're starting to see is that you're actually starting to see degenerative, degenerative excess growth and changes to the cartilaginous surfaces and, and bony surfaces as a result of not moving. Think of it almost like, uh, like, a like a self-smoothing piece of sandpaper where we have two joints that are moving together that keep each other nice and smooth. Not so much that they're grinding into each other, but just enough to just smooth it out so we have this nice slick piece of ice that the two sides can, can have a relationship with, which is fantastic because that allows the joint to articulate. Now, the question that we commonly get when we're talking about this stuff is like, well, what about a, what about a crunchy joint? Does that mean there's more crud or crap in there that's causing, that's, that's going to be chipping away and wearing and tearing at it? No, it doesn't. Now, there are instances of a loose body where you have a fragment for whatever reason that has come off, but the majority of this is, again, we have two surfaces rubbing together. You're bound to get a little friction and you're bound to get some crunchiness, but you also have ligaments that are rolling over bones. You also have muscles that are moving. There's a number of different factors. So if you have, if you have crunchy joints, which we'll do another whole show on this probably, 
it does not mean that you're wearing down the joint. You just have two surfaces rubbing together. Now, it would be different is if you moved the joint and you had a significant pop or sound and there is an, a, a pain elicited with it, that could be an indication of potentially something more. But we're not talking about that right now, right? We're talking about two joint surfaces that need that need to rub against each other to help auto-regulate auto their, their borders and their surface. In addition to moving more, it's helping synovial fluid pump in and out, which keeps your joints nice and lubricated all of which keeps a nice healthy joint so that you can load it and then you need to load it enough and more so that you reach the zone of adaptation to elicit and, and keep this auto regulation or auto regenerative properties going on. That is the whole reason why movement and skeletal muscle density, which then in turn leads to healthier joints, is a huge proponent of longevity. The more, the more mobile you are, right? The more you're able to move around on your own, the longer you're more likely to live. Those that are required to have more assistance for basic movement, their mortality rate goes up. So if anything, if all you do to live longer is keep your muscles and your joints healthy, that's good. Now, the same goes true. This is just a side note. This is why there's a lot of talk about brain health and brain activity and stimulating your brain. If it's it, Our body regenerates based on external stimulus. So if you externally stimulate your brain, if you externally stimulate your muscles, your joints, your tendons, you will continue to make them stronger. Now, what, what commonly happens is we get tripped up in this, and I'm not saying this completely wrong, but we get tripped up in this model of lightweight and high repetitions, assuming that heavier weight is more damaging, again, more damaging to our joints and our tendons and our ligaments. That is not the case. There are benefits to a lightweight, high repetition uh, methodology and, and programming, but that is not the sole focus. There is a ton of benefit with doing slightly heavier, again, relative to you, resistance training to, again, elicit proper muscle adaptation, growth, strength, neurological conditioning, as well as conditioning for your joints. Now, even more important than that is full range of motion. So I was having this conversation with someone else earlier this week who was complaining of neck pain and I hadn't seen her for a year and a half for a few different reasons, but we were talking about workstation ergonomics and posture. And, and I just did an Instagram video on this as well, where I don't, I don't demonize posture. I simply have a conversation about how posture should be dynamic. And yet we run into static positions from time to time. Like I've been sitting here with you guys for 27 minutes now. I am hunched and I'm rounded over. If I was to be doing this for five, six, four, six, eight hours a day, that might start creating some issues within my back because I'm simply not moving the joints, the ligaments, the tendons. See where we're going with this, right? But what we start to see is we live in this world. I am framing the, the image of me right now on the camera. I'm I've only been looking here. And the majority of us, we only look here throughout the whole day, maybe down a little bit to a phone or a book or a laptop. But what a, when was the last time you've literally looked all the way up towards the sky, right? Or keeping your shoulders square as far left as you can and as far right as you can. When was the last time you turned all the way to the left or all the way to the right? When was the last time you took all three of those planes of motion and combined them together? So for instance, I could tip my head back, 
to the side and then rotate left or right. So it would look something like this if you're watching. Right? So I'm carving out this, this 3D representation of all of the possible range of motion and positions that my joints should be able to go into. Now, you, I'm not saying you have to use every single joint through its full range of motion every single day. While that would be awesome and ideal, it's usually not going to happen. But for shoulders, when was the last time you extended back as far as you can, thus creating a lot of tension in the front, creating restrictions within the joint? For the spine, we flex a lot. But do we, we typically don't go through like a lot of true good flexion and or extension, not to mention lateral flexion and rotation. So we see while we're trying to do our best efforts of exercising, even functional training, which is, you know, just plastered everywhere, we still miss out on so many opportunities to condition the muscles, the tendons, the connective tissue, and the joints by going through just proper range of motion. Now, this is not stretching per se. This is a movement mo modality, if you will, which is, which is specifically intended to elicit using your joint through full ranges of motion right? So how would that look? Let's just, we already gave the, the, the example of the cervical spine or the neck. For your wrist, it might just be some wrist circles, right? We're constantly in flexion. Very rarely we might be going up and down, side to side or rotation or any combination of that, right? The shoulder we already talked about of flexion. Uh, we do a lot of flexion and, you know, kind of out to the side, but even just bringing our arms up over the head. It is surprising, actually. Some of my patients who have not lifted their head their arms over their head in in a while, we'll say that, right? And it creates a lot of stiffness around the joints. It can be, get, it, you can get it back, but it makes it a lot harder if you haven't done it in a while. Now, on top of just the shoulder, the hip, well, we sit, it goes through some flexion, we walk, it goes through a little bit of extension, but we hardly challenge it into internal rotation, external rotation, or abduction, or bringing it away like we would with our arm. So what I want to challenge you guys to do, and uh, I don't have, I had a previously done like mobility challenge, if you will, um, not like a competition or anything like that, but just encouraging this principle of moving your joints throughout, throughout the day. And, and this, this reminds me, I need to revamp that and, and update that. But I, I, I challenge you to take and think about all your joints and think about different ways in which you can move that. Now, you don't have to be a you don't have to be a chiropractor or a, or a personal trainer or movement coach to do this. Most people understand movement to a basic degree, right? So for instance, let's start with some of the more simple ones. Your toes. Your toes are flat when you're on the ground and then when you walk, they go through extension. So they bend up, right, to propel yourself going forward. Without shoes, when was the last time you curled your toes underneath and kind of got the tops of your toes on the ground and pushed down on them, creating toe flexion? I guarantee, I guarantee the majority, majority of you haven't done that in the last day, for sure, the last week, and I bet the majority of you have not done that in the last month. Now, why does that matter? What's, well, you know, it's, I don't have any toe issues or pain. Like I'm doing just fine. Yeah, true. I mean, but I'm coming at it from a different model, right? As we already indicated, the movement model for mortality is 
is is directly correlated, right? And what's one of the main things that you need to be able to do as an adult as you grow older to regain and have as much, you know, independence and control? Walking. So, you know, I would hate for anybody to have such stiff feet and toes that walking does become painful. And I'm not saying it will. This is not a uh, this is not a scare tactic. Saying if you don't stretch your toes, you're gonna die sooner. That is not what this is. So you know, calm down, all y'all out there. But this is just a brief example to explore and see how to take the movement process of just simply moving, aside from stretching, aside from strength training, both of which are still important, and just trying to move the joints through all this range of motion to re-lubricate your synovial fluid, to smoothen out the surfaces that are gliding against each other, to strengthen the connective tissue that surrounds it, to densify and make stronger the tendons and the ligaments that are also there. Right. But again, there's a load principle. You cannot just mobilize and stretch your way to stronger, healthier joints. There is an element of loading that has to happen. We've talked about that loading, um, the adaptation zone and not enough. It's not going to listen to what we want, but yet sometimes too much. Most people assume we're in the too much when I actually think we're actually in the not enough, but yet then we want to make good changes. And then we see this spike. Remember the story of the CrossFitter. They were lifting before. We know they had good, strong joints, but yet they did, or sorry, CrossFitter hit training. But yet over the last six months, they changed what they were doing. We saw a, a significant spike in load of the bicep tendon based on the activities that they were doing over the last six months. And we can then make a, a pretty accurate prediction and assessment that that was probably the cause of it. So just because we're down here majority of the time, we call this the weekend warrior, right? Throughout the week, most of us aren't doing enough. We're more sedentary than not. But that on the weekends, we want to go play and we want to go play hard. And so we do a 20-mile bike ride or we, we do an eight-mile trail run. Your body's not conditioned to do that. The tendons, the muscles, the ligaments have not been conditioned and densified and strengthened enough to withstand that. And then you see this tendonitis or joint pain or arthritis response because of a, a peak in loading, not because of consistent things. So that's where working with a coach is so beneficial. They are, they, they're more or less just there to help you manage load, to reduce injuries, to get you to do the most that you can by also reducing injuries by keeping, you know, kind of control and reins on how far and, and much you want to push. Uh, athlete dependent, person dependent, recovery dependent. Okay. But I hope, I hope that this at least, um, sparks some questions that you can ask your providers. I hope that it gave you a little bit more confidence in your joint condition that the majority of you most likely do not have this life altering joint arthritis that's going to require a replacement, a quote unquote replacement down the road or significant tendon damage that you've been told, well, you know, just keep going until it gets really bad and then we'll just do surgery on it. No, there's so much you can do. You just need to know and understand the appropriate amount of what to do. And if you don't know, that's why there's professionals. Skilled chiropractors that are good at rehab, skilled physical therapists, and, and honestly, really good personal trainers and rehab professionals that know training and loading would be phenomenal. And sometimes it's just a consult. Hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? 
oh, well, what are you doing? And we go through the conversation of figuring out how much you're doing. Is it too much? Is it too little? Could you supplement some additional prehab, rehab, or strength training movements to further strengthen the ligaments, connective tissue, and joints, so on and so forth. Um, and, 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 and I think that would be highly beneficial. Now, as a caveat, because I have heard this said before, and I just don't want people to get caught up in semantics, um, someone was arguing essentially like joints, you can't strengthen joints, you know, indicating that strength training doesn't strengthen the knee. You can strengthen the muscles around it. But when we're talking about strengthen, think of it as, again, like creating more density, making it more resilient. So in my mind, you can strengthen the knee. You can strengthen the cartilage. You can strengthen the bone. You can strengthen the ligaments around it, all of which can be strengthened because of the load response. The impact that's actually being absorbed into the body will then feel, oh, I am getting more load into me. I need to thicken. I need to strengthen. I need to become stronger to withstand what's being asked of me. So I have confidence in you. I hope you have confidence in yourself. If you don't, you need someone in your corner that can help you gain that confidence to create more positive experiences with movement. No one wants to feel limited by basic activities, right? You want to be able to do the things that you want to be able to do. Now, there are things that I was able to do when I was younger that I'm currently not able to do. If I wanted to do those, I could, but I don't have the time or the training plan to be able to accomplish those right now. So don't just assume that, oh, I used to be able to do those things I'll never be able to. It all comes back down to the proper training and loading to help squash arthritis, to help eliminate tendonitis, whatever it is that you feel like you're struggling with. I know this can help. So uh, Live Loud Life Podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you got a buddy who's, you know, always like, ah, oh, my tendonitis is flaring up or, you know, my arthritis is so bad, share this with them. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's an extremely helpful conversation. If not, at least provide some ammunition so that they can go to their ortho, their PCP or whoever is harping on them about arthritis and tendonitis and start asking some better questions. Uh, it helps them start Googling maybe some different providers in the area to help again, create that confidence in your body so that you can move your joints more, make them stronger and live longer and live a loud life. Thanks guys. See you next time.